In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister and Helen Houston and myself, Susan Brown. In this episode, we will be covering the following topics. Liz? Well, it's the start of a new year. I've been looking ahead to 2021 and what's due to happen in Scotland this year. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is the reopening of the Burrell Collection in Glasgow. So that's my topic. Great place. Helen? Well, I'm going to be doing something quite different, but something that's quite close to our hearts or our tummies. I'm going to be talking about sweeties. Mm, oh, that great Scottish sweet tooth. <laughs> and I'm going to be talking about Scottish gold. A wealth of treasures. Well, we're all looking for a bit of gold at the beginning of this new year, aren't we? Yeah, gold's at the end of the rainbow. One of our colleagues, Sarah Murdoch, did say something that struck a chord with me last night. And she was saying that she's changed her whole way of thinking about this round. I mean, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We do have vaccines available now. And so she reckons maybe about six months and the world might try to get back onto its axis again. And so we've got this golden opportunity of six months to do all the things that we would like to do before we get back on the hamster wheel again. It's a good way of thinking of it. Why don't you kick off Liz talking about things to look forward to then and the Burrell Collection? Well, if you come to visit Scotland and you visit Glasgow, one of my favourite sites to visit is the Burrell Collection. It's a combination of a museum and a gallery and it's just a wealth of treasures. And it's down to one man, William Burrell, later knighted to become Sir William Burrell. And he had a very interesting life. He was born in 1861, the third of nine children, and he was born into a family where his grandfather had already founded a shipping business in 1856. And William joined the business when he was just 14. And together with his brother, they went on to make a fortune. Ten years later, he'd acquired control. And you could really say that William and his brother George had the Midas touch. What they had was nerves of steel. They were shipping magnets, but the way that they became exceptional was because they would buy ships when there was a depression. So they could go to the shipyards and they could get them made at rock bottom prices. And then when things turned around again and trade was booming, they then had a fleet of ships ready to go and shift cargoes around the world. Then at the height of the trading boom, they would sell the fleet and keep the money ready for the next depression. So they did this twice. You might think it was easy, but nobody else had the 
either the nerve or the money to be able to do it. And so they made an absolute fortune. Now, at this point, we're talking about the turn of the the 20th century. There were a number of rich merchants in Glasgow who were all trading in art. And in 1901, in Glasgow, we held the Glasgow International Art Exhibition, which gave rise to the Kelvin Hall that you might see nowadays, Kelvin Grove. And William Burrell was one of the major exhibitors with only over 200 pieces exhibited there. It was a highly competitive marketplace. He was bidding against not only people from Scotland, but across the world. You may have heard of William Randolph Hearst, who was one of his greatest competitors for his castle in California. So they would use buyers, they would use agents who went out and bought in secret on their behalf. And William was meticulous. He would keep all his purchases recorded in 28 school jotters. So he succeeded in forming a major collection. Every field that he was interested in, he became a major collector, whether it was oriental ceramics, bronzes, medieval European art, European paintings. He had collections that people all over the world would have given their eye teeth for. But perhaps he became most famous for his late Gothic and early Renaissance collection. So what to do with it? Well, he did have one daughter, but he didn't leave any inheritance to her. We can go into that later on. And so when he died, he left it to his beloved city of Glasgow. And he left with it very, very strict requirements. First of all, it had to be taken out of the smog and dirt of Glasgow. So where it had to be housed had to be a rural setting within four miles of Calerne in Stirlingshire and 16 miles of the Royal Exchange in Glasgow. And he left £250,000, quite a fortune in those days, to house it. And so it was years and years before the eventually, in 1967, the city of Glasgow acquired Pollock Park, which met the requirements, and so they could go ahead and exhibit his collection. And in 1971, they held a design competition. Thankfully, there was a postal strike, and it meant that a late entrance was able to be included. And so three academics from Cambridge, led by Barry Gasson, were successful in their design. And their design not only showed the collection to best effect, but it also had the building sitting in the the park so it became part of the park. They used large pieces such as Romanesque doorways, beautiful stone, a lot of glass. And so it literally grew out of the landscape. And today, up until uh, recently, you could go and visit it. But there was always structural problems. And so it was closed in 2016 for major refurbishment, £66 million allocated for what was called the Burrell Collection Renaissance. And this year, 2021, we're going to get the reopening. So I can't wait to go and see this fantastic collection. Have you visited, ladies? Yes, I've been there and I'm just always blown away by the variety, the huge spectrum of art that is covered in that collection, that one man collected that and the outdoors, of course. Susan, what's your favourite piece? Oh, goodness, there's so many. I mean, that was my local museum when I used to live in Glasgow. It was a 10 minute walk from home. So I used to quite often go a walk into Pollock Park and then go into the Burrell Collection. I, I liked a lot of their Persian stuff. Yeah. Some of the paintings, I think the stained glass that they had up against the windows so you could see through it and get all the colour coming through, it was great. They say that it even rivals the collection of stained glass in the Cloisters Museum in New York. 
It's yes. a fabulous collection of stained glass. It just it was just great because it was so accessible. And what I really loved was seeing people of all ages in there. One of the, the problems that it always had were structural problems with this fabulous building. But the other problem mm-hmm. was that they could only ever exhibit a fraction of the 9,000, nearly 9,000 objects they had collected. And with this refurbishment, they're going to open up what was previously storerooms on the ground floor. So they've got a completely different a new level. And that means that about 90% of the collection will now be out on show, which is fantastic. Oh, well, we'll need to get that one planned in once we're allowed to move around again. The good thing about it is that it was always free to go into, wasn't it? It was. Yep, donation. All Glasgow museums. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. and the nice thing is that it is it is a day out because you've got the museum, but you've got the wonderful Pollock Park within which it's sited. I mentioned earlier about his daughter. I mean, it's a really sad tale. You know, you can have all the money in the world, but there's always sadness associated with it. Money doesn't bring happiness. And in the 1980s, when the Queen opened the Burrell collection to the public, his daughter was invited. And as the Queen was about to step up, there was great concern. Where's his daughter? Where's his daughter? And they actually found her sleeping in one of the rooms. <laughs> she had fallen asleep. She was 93, so oh. give her, she had, oh. um, But it was a sad life because Burrell was devoted to his wife, Constance, who was the daughter of another art collector in Glasgow. And when she gave birth to their daughter, it was a bad birth. And so she was distraught by this birth. And so she had mental health issues for the rest of her life. And both her and her husband took this out on the daughter and she actually had three oh. engagements which were all broken off. And so in 1947, she became estranged from the family and she didn't get anything in the inheritance at all. So sad tale. That's very sad. Yes. Well, ladies, that's the Burrell Collection. That's one of the highlights to look forward to in the new year. What about you, Susan? What can we look forward to from you? Hopefully a little bit of gold panning. I knew that they carried out gold panning locally in Highland Perthshire across at Highland Safaris at Dull which is twinned with boring in Oregon, but the name of the place is Dull. It made me think, well, what is the history of gold and gold panning in Scotland? And really, it's gold has been an important part of Scottish heritage for millennia. When you look back in history, they have found some jewellery and artworks that have been made out of gold, done by the Picts, and they think before that... There was trade with the Romans in terms of Scottish gold, not huge amounts of it. And in the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh, there is a great exhibition downstairs in the basement where they have Paolozzi sculptures that have like glass boxes on these very modernistic sculptures round about the neck, the ears and the wrists where they display some of the gold that has been made and found in Scotland. Beautiful necklaces, bracelets and everything else like that. And it made me think, well, what happened to gold after that? Because you don't really hear that much about it in Scotland after seeing these. So I had a little look into it and I found out that there was extensive mining down towards the border, round about One Lock Head and the Lead Hills area of Scotland, right through the 1400s and early 1500s, the reigns of James IV and V. And they found nuggets of gold there weighing close to one kilogram, so just over oh, two pounds. Yeah. Could you imagine yeah, finding yeah. a nugget of gold Gosh, that's, in Scotland that size? Huge, yes. However, unfortunately, the gold mining in Lead Hills stopped in the reign of James VI in the 1620s, and it was only a small-scale extraction after that. And it all seems to have gone quiet until the middle of the 1800s. 
And we had two gold rushes in Scotland in the middle of the 1800s. Obviously, you hear about the gold rushes in Australia and in, in America, but you don't hear so much about the Scottish ones. So there was one in Fife from May to July 1852, when about 2,000 people were hoping to have a, a life-changing find. Unfortunately, they only found fool's gold. Mm. Oh, right. Yes, it has. Because, you know, gold at that time was valued at about £4 an ounce. So with a skilled worker earning less than £50 a year, you could make a lot of money. So people went for it, but that didn't really work. So that was the Fife Gold Rush of 1852. However, up in Sutherland, you had the return of Robert Gilchrist, who'd been in Australia and New Zealand, and he was prospecting for gold out there. He came back to Sutherland, which is up north of Inverness, in 1868, and he decided to have a look for gold up there. And he focused his search round about the Kildonan and the Helmsdale area. And he did find some. There was about 180 people who asked for permission to go and search up there as well. And they actually created townships for the prospectors. And there was two different townships there, the town of gold and the rock shop. <laughs> That's the, the anglicised names for them. They were, they were actually, you know, in Gaelic. Byla and Or, and I apologise for my Gaelic pronunciation, and Carmnanbu. And there was a 10% tax that had to be paid to the crown. They found a little bit, but not enough to keep going. So by 1870, it was over. However, they think that maybe the prospectors didn't declare everything. Uh, maybe sounds a little bit like the whiskey uh, producers yes. at the time. But they think there was possibly 400 kilos of gold that was taken over the year. Oh, gosh, that's a lot. Huh? Yeah. What about today? Does anybody go looking for gold today? Well, yes, you've got the amateurs and you've got the professionals. So the amateurs still have a look round about the Lead Hills and Kildonan and also uh, round about Fife. You've got the ones at Highland Safaris and you've got the Menic Water on the Buclue Estates as well. So there's kind of places that people will go. And there was actually a few articles in the newspaper about basically organised gangs moving in and people oh. getting pushed off their claims. But the main one is Coronish. And ladies, have you heard of Coronish? No, I haven't. No. Right, so this, no. is, this is the commercial one up near Tyndrum. Oh, yes, I have heard of that one, yes. They started looking in the mid-1980s, but the price of gold wasn't really high enough and they, they had to keep on reinvesting and trying to get more money. And eventually in 2014, they got more money. They have managed to pull out quite a lot of gold and the price is a staggering 378% premium over standard gold prices. Wow. wow. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> so the Tyndrum Gold in 2016 was an average of £4,557 per ounce, whereas the spot price is 953 for everybody else's gold. So, you know, rarity value is obviously something. And I was looking to see who'd been buying it because they kind of sell it in ingots. And I saw that Sheila Fleet Jewelry oh, yeah. Yeah. from oh, up right. north, she's bought an ingot. So I think she's working with some Scottish gold. So do you have anything made out of Scottish gold? Well, first of all, I think it would probably be a lot easier to go out and buy a lottery ticket, probably with much chance, <laughs> but not half as much fun as getting your pan and going out to the river. I don't know if I've got anything in Scottish gold at all, because I don't think it says, well, 
I haven't if it says if it says it's Scottish gold, I haven't got anything. But I heard about that gold mine up in Tindrum and I think it, it had been a gold mine and they they've kind of reopened it and sort of made it safe and I think, can you visit it? Uh, I don't think you can visit it. It's a commercial operation, right. but they do say that they're following the best environmental practices so that they're not ruining the local area and they're not using dodgy chemicals and stuff. I wondered whether the new metal detectors, does that work? Do they work through water if you're panning for gold? Could you use a metal detector? I think you'd probably end up getting electrocuted. <laughs> a bit, maybe, yes. <laughs> You hear a lot about Welsh gold, don't you? I think a lot of the Scottish and Welsh gold go to the crown, literally for crowns and you know jewellery yes. and engagement and wedding rings and whatever. Um, highly sought after. Yeah, there was a, an exhibition in March 2014 at the Hunterian and they had the King's Gold Cup from the Leith Races of 1751, oh, right, yeah. Queen Victoria's Gold Collar of the Order of the Thistle, and the cloth of gold from the tomb of Robert the Bruce, as well as these Bronze Age and Iron Age, you know, gold torques that I mentioned. Yeah, you, you mentioned the Palozzi sculptures in the National Museum of Scotland. I love those because, you know, it's a new way of curating objects because we don't know how we don't know how they wore them. We assume they were yeah. jewellery, but we don't know that because it's prehistoric before the written word. So, you know, they just display them using these pieces of fine design sculpture. I know, and the Palazzi sculptures themselves are quite impressive. Love them. You know, they're quite modernistic and quite blocky, but actually it's it's a great way to make you think differently about things. Definitely. Oh, yes. And they, they are, and they have them outside as well as inside, haven't they, these sculptures? And I can imagine them with the gold on them. They'd be just stunning. If you fancy doing a bit of gold planning, ladies, there is actually a Scottish and British gold planning championship. Uh, 2013 was the 25th anniversary so you never know if, if the guiding doesn't come back we might all be taking to the rivers and trying to find our own pot of gold yes. I think it would be easier just to visit the National Museum in Edinburgh and uh, have a look at the gold sitting on the Palazzi structures yeah. Helen, on to you, moving from gold gold on the body to maybe gold in the body with your That's sweeties right. a, a bit of the sublime to the ridiculous now so I'm going to talk about sweeties. And of course, just after Christmas, we've all probably eaten our fill. The Scots, believe it or not, eat more sweets than any other people in the world. Apparently, only the Swiss come a close second. Traditionally, our eating habits were fairly bland and seasonless. But all that changed when sugar arrived from the West Indies in the late 1600s. Tablet and fudge became firm favourites in Scotland and a tradition of boiling became established. The boiled sweets we eat today are almost identical to those made in Victoria times by the sweetie wives who made them at home and sold them on the streets. Some of the most famous sweetie wives came from the Scottish borders, selling hoik balls, sewer plumes, jeddart snails and other favourites. So let's look at some of these. What are hoik balls? Sometimes known as taffy rock bulls, originated in the town of Hoik. They're bullet-shaped boiled sweets with a particular butter and minty fresh taste. Apparently, the significance of the bullet shape relates to the Battle of Flodden, which took place just across the border in 1513. A great fan of Hoyt Balls was rugby commentator Bill McLaren, who was 
seldom without a packet of his favourite sweets, and he used them to kind of introduce himself to the people he wanted to interview to talk. Um, he'd just offer them a sweetie and then get out the microphone and start chatting to them. Another great fan was the yachtsman Che Bly. But another boarder's favourite are sewer plumes. These are sharp, flavoured, round, green-boiled sweets originally associated with peebles and gala shields, sewer plumes. But staying in the borders, we've got Moffat toffee. It's not really a toffee at all, but a boiled sweet. It has a sweet caramel flavour on the outside with a notable tangy and sweet centre, made by hand and sold in uneven flat shapes. It seems that the borders had all the sweeties as Coulter's candy was made in Melrose, Robert Coulter sold his candy at fairs and markets and to attract people to his stall, he played his whistle and sang Coulter's Candy. And that song is still well known today and has been recorded by many artists. The other one, and I think this is an area close to your heart, Liz, McCowan's mm-hmm. Highland Toffee. Was, Muir. That's right, was one of Scotland's best love sweets for more than 80 years. And the company also introduced the Wham Bar and quickly followed by the Iron Brew Bar. Some of you might recognise these names. I think McCowan's Toffee can only now be bought online. They've pulled the factory down now. Oh, they pulled it down, yes. Jeddart snails were originally made in Jedburgh. These dark brown toffees with a peppermint flavour were said to be introduced by a French prisoner of war working in the local bakers during the Napoleonic Wars. Well, you'd never know that, would you? And Edinburgh Rock is often flavoured with ginger or lemon and made into sticks which are brittle and soft in tester, not like the seaside rock, not like Blackpool Rock. But it's the pan drops that are now associated with the sermon in churches. The minister's sermon should be no longer than the time taken to sook a pan drop, <laughs> sometimes also known as granny sookers. The Scottish tablet should be firmer than fudge, but not as hard as toffee. And a great way, believe it or not, to use up your leftover mashed potatoes is to make macaroon bars, which have a hard fondant centre, which is coated in chocolate and toasted coconut. It's actually really lovely. I remember Lee's macaroon bars growing up. They were delicious. Childhood and teenage years can often be recaptured by the mention of toffees, fudges, tablets, macaroons, Edinburgh Rock and many others. However, today's Scottish confectioners are creating innovative and award-winning products. Subtle flavours and quality are replacing those sugar-filled delights of yesteryears. But we still love our sweeties. Before we go on to the favourites, you mentioned their sweetie wives, Helen. Well, you could call the three of us sweetie wives because another another use of the term sweetie wife <laughs> yes. is for a gossip, somebody that <laughs> likes likes to talk. So three sweetie wives here as Scottish boilers. Any favourites, Susan? To me, it has to be the lemon sherbets and the sewer plumes. Oh, yeah. And, yes. and yeah. I don't know if, if Susan will remember this, but Helen certainly will. As school children, when we were going to school, you would get your pocket money to go and you went into the newsagents where the sweeties were sold and they had trays on the counter. So you started off with the halfpenny tray, then the penny tray and then the tuppenny tray. I remember we used to go into the sweet shop in Stirling. I think it was Isa White was the name of the little little old lady, but she was probably not a little old lady. She was probably just in her 50s. But to us, she was a little old lady. And you got, I think, 10 aniseed balls for a penny. 
And so 10 of us would go in, each with a penny, and ask for 100 aniseed balls and watch her as she carefully counted them out, 100 aniseed balls. So you had things like, do you remember flying saucers with the sherbet? And there's still the old-fashioned sweet shops still exist. I think, is there one in Aviemore, Liz? It is, yeah, the old-fashioned sweet shop. But if you want to see it looking realistic, as it would have done at the Highland Folk Museum, Outside, can you see? Um, they actually have a sweet shop where they weigh out on a, on the scales. You get your quarter of your sour plumes or your pineapple chunks, yeah. iron brew, whichever it is you you fancy. When I was a kid, we used to buy it in the quarter, so we didn't do the the halfpenny ones and everything else. But you buy it by the quarter, and there's a fantastic sweet shop in Pitlochry called Love Your Sweets. And before every tour, I take in a little Tupperware box. And I basically get a selection of different Scottish sweeties for the guests to try. Yeah, I use that shop as well, but I buy their tablet because they have fantastic flavoured tablet. So iron brew, whiskey, rum and raisin, you can buy the tablet and fudge there. I must say that I always buy the sweets for tours and I always call it my sugar boost. Yeah, apart from the tour operators, the persons that benefit most are the dentists when they go home. Of course. Yeah, well, funnily enough, the dentist in Pitlochry is right behind the sweetie shop. Well, I think we've probably moved from our sweeties on to the, the nasty thing of dentists. So let's look at our favourite words now. And I'll kick this off because we've been talking about sweeties and I mentioned it. Souk. To souk a sweetie is just to suck it, not to crunch it, not just to souk it. Souk it and the... Liz, have you got a word? I'll follow on from that because we were talking about sour. Sour is sour. So a sour plume is a sour plum. And the other word associated with that is wersh, where something's wersh, it draws your, your cheeks together. It's so sour. I can feel my cheeks drawing in at the mere thought of the word. <laughs> <laughs> and Susan, what about yourself? Okay, I am going to go with the positive. When I go gold panning, I am going to find a belter of a nugget. So a belter is a big or a huge, a fantastic, uh, a wonderful. So if something's a belter, it's, it's quite something. Well, good luck, Susan. Yeah, absolutely. And let, let's hope that 2021 is a belt of a year. Indeed. Susan's favourite word, indeed. <laughs> You're right. Oh, my goodness. I have to edit that out so much. You have no idea. Between that and starting sentences with so. Well, I don't know how you ladies felt. But I felt very rusty there. So I'm glad to have one episode under my belt because um, I'm going to make it more professional for the next one. We're getting back into the swing of things. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> oh, gosh, she's done it again. <laughs> so, shall we draw this to a conclusion? <laughs> yes, Daughter of the Rock, let's do that. <laughs> Thank you all for your time, and I look forward to getting together with you again. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's Cheery Bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.